Welcome to Adversarial Learning. Joel here. Welcome to another episode of Adversarial Learning. Today, Andrew and I are going to be talking about data science conferences. So if you've ever been curious about data science conferences, how they're planned, what they're like, whether you should go, whether you should stay home, who you should talk to, how to break the ice with either of us, this is the episode you should listen to because we'll be talking about data science conferences. So this is Andrew and Joel, as hey. always, on Adversarial Learning. Today we are... Uh filling a bit of a gap in the, the podcast schedule. Uh, we realized that it's been a while and we wanted to catch up on some stuff. I just came back from uh, San Francisco on Thursday after a, a good wrangle conf uh, down there uh, organized by Cloudera and I happened to be on the program committee. So I wasn't speaking, but I waffled on whether I should go down or not. And then, you know, I realized that I should should make an appearance because, uh, you know, being on the program committee, you, you have had contact with lots of people. Uh, so we were going to talk about conferences and what it means to be at conferences, what it means to be invited, what it means to speak, uh, what it means to be reinvited and things like that. Yeah. So, um, to, to start with, because, uh, some people might not know, I'm not sure I even know, like what is a, what's a program committee? What do they do? Uh, yeah, the program committee is a group of folks who are, um, tasked with either coming up with a list of speakers, tasked with coming up with a theme for the conference, looking for some kind of coherent topic, um, possibly putting panels together. In the case of uh, conferences like Strata that I'm also on the committee for, uh, where they have a request for proposals or request for, for talks, uh, then that also means uh, reading through, you know, up to 100 or 300 uh, proposals, uh, abstracts, and giving your thoughts, either voting uh, one through five, up or down, or uh, adding comments. And how does uh, how does one get on a program committee? Is there like a different committee that chooses who's on the program committee or <laughs> meta committee? The uh, so for Strata, I just I asked somebody who was I think the chair uh, if they wanted some help because at the time I think that was about uh, six years ago. I was I was attending Strata for the first time I think maybe the second time and I was interested in the types of talks that were getting proposed and not showing up in the actual actual show and so I let somebody know that I was interested in helping out and they it was it was that was as easy as that so I got added to a mailing mailing list I had a login for uh rating proposals and stuff like that for so Wrangle you, So you've been doing that for 6 years you said? Yeah. So I, I've had a couple of strata rejections in that time frame. Uh, yeah, were, were you involved with those? I remember seeing one of yours. I can't say what I did. Um, I happened to be positive on it, um, but yeah, the um, I forget which one it was. Which one? Which ones did you propose? Oh gosh, who knows? I, I think last year they had a There's two one years ago they had a data ethics track. Yeah, um, and so I, I proposed uh, a talk against data ethics. I, I guess I. Kind of a, to it's get probably, kind of a contrarian take. Yeah, I don't think it's a breach for me to say. I, I rated that highly, and I did say, you know, full disclosure, Joel's a friend of mine. But yeah, I, th I think probably um, that contrarian take just didn't didn't fit in with the, the with the overall viewpoint. So there's, you know, definitely some. Um, some sort of unspoken uh, agreement and group think that has that goes on when people are putting conferences together, unless of course you have an unconference, right? Which is when you know there is no there's no agenda at the beginning and people just submit their talks and people do voting right on the fly. Um, yeah. For Wrangle, I was just invited, um, so that was much more of a um, that was more and that the, the speakers weren't. There's no call for call for uh, talks yet on that one. That's still. I fully, fully inv invited only. Right. Yeah. I tried to, uh, I actually tried to email Pete, uh, to offer him a talk and that didn't work. So <laughs> invited did he, only. Did he get it? <laughs> did he get the email? Yeah. I think so. I don't know why he wouldn't have. I used his right email address. But, um, so one thing I noticed about WrangleConf, I went last year, I didn't go this year, was that the program committee seemed, uh, very large relative to the number of talks at the conference. Uh -huh. Like there was basically like one program committee member per talk. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's about right. Yeah, this year the same. So it was about about the same same ratio this year too. Yeah. So which uh, which of the talks on the schedule uh, was your pick, Andrew's pick? 
I actually, I proposed a couple and they weren't, uh, they were, well, actually, no, one was accepted, but the person had to back out because they, the, their job situation changed. Um, but I did help out. I was asked to, to fill in, um, organizing a panel, uh, in the morning, um, scrambled to do that, got somebody I know at work to agree. And then sort of short notice, we just reached out, uh, you know, people's friends of friends type of thing. And then we ended up with actually too many people. So we were happy when somebody, uh, had to back out because of time constraints. So that was step with my panel was, uh, you know, building data products for data scientists. So how much of uh, the talk selection that goes on at these conferences is like friends of friends and friends of friends of friends? Yeah, a lot of it. You know, I mean, they're in practical terms, um, there's a lot of filtering based on, you know, because people are doing this on their spare time. So this is extracurricular stuff. This is done, you know, weekends and nights. Um, you know, and in my case, I, I, I find that I'm, I'm doing it at times when, you know, my wife would like me to be parenting or, or being a spouse and, and being involved in the family. So, you know, at that, at, th- at those moments, you, you do tend to go a little faster than reading every word and, and really, really thinking about each one. So there's a lot of, and I'm speaking for myself, I'm not sure if everybody does it this way, but there's, you know, there's a lot of snap judgments. There's a lot of taking things in really quickly as a snapshot. Um, so I think there's a lot of filtering that happens by, you know, first of all, have I ever seen this person speak before? If you have, and it, it was a good experience, then, you know, that's a, at least a subjective, um, you know, instinctive response where you're going to be inclined to, to say yes. You know, I try to be careful myself when I'm doing that to then step back for a second and, and think about, you know, is this person, I may have an instinctual response to the to person I've seen speak before. I may actually like the topic, but, uh, you know, does this abstract actually sound like a well thought through talk? So I think that the, uh, you know, just the fact that there's filtering that happens, um, it by its nature. Yeah. There, there are a lot of people uh, chosen because they've either spoken before or they're, you know, in the same professional or social circles or, uh, you know, somebody just likes that company. So um, I should, I should be friendlier is what you're saying. If I want to get more of my top I'm saying you should have more friends of friends. Yeah. More probably. friends, more friends of friends. <laughs> so I should either make more friends or I should encourage my friends to make more friends. Um, I'm not yeah, sure this is easier. Yeah, you should incent your friends to make friends. Um, so, so, so obviously, if you're someone who's, uh, you know, famous as a data scientist, uh, assuming there's people who are like DJ Patil, I think is famous as a data scientist, and so on. Famous. Yeah. You're you're probably going to get to talk anywhere, but I'm sure there's, uh, you know, a lot of people. Well, I'm not sure there's a lot of people listening, but I'm sure there's some people listening who maybe are less famous, less experienced. Uh, maybe they've never given a conference talk at all before, um, but they would like to. Yeah. Um, so as someone who, you know, has participated in picking these talks, what advice could you give for someone who is a yeah. potential first time speaker? Yeah. I mean, I would say, um, obviously it doesn't hurt to, to, you know, you know, befriend and ingratiate yourself in, in public to people who are, you know, tend to be on these things. Obviously it's a little cynical to say that, but, um, you know, that's, that, that is, that is something people respond to, but I mean, in a more concrete sense, um, there, I, there are well-written and, and poorly written abstracts, you know? And so if you, if you submit something, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that, that turn people off if, if they're reviewing 300 or 200 proposals. Okay. In a yeah, weekend. Swear words. Is that a plus or minus? Where, it depends. It depends on uh, depends on the conference. Like if you're submitting to Black Hat or Def, DefCon, I'm sure that's a plus. Uh, I think you know the the there are a few you know broad broad turnoffs that you can avoid. This this would help you. Uh, one would be uh, not to be at a large large you know say business machines um, uh, company that's international and and carpet bomb the uh, request with you know. 50 proposals from your company, especially if they overlap in topic and especially if they have, you know, 10, some, someone submitted 10 times as a speaker. So getting overwhelmed like that is one way to, uh, I mean, overwhelming people is a, a good way to turn voters off. Um, also, you know, just structurally, um, if there is a description and an abstract, uh, don't put the same text in both. Uh, see, I always do that because I don't know what, like, what's the difference between a description and an abstract? Uh, I mean, to me, a description, it should, it, if the site doesn't say so in a little tooltip or something, you know, it, it should say, here's, here's a place for your title. It should be like 30 characters or less or whatever. 
Uh, here's a description. It should be a you know one sentence uh, intro, and then the abstract should be you know 200 words, something like that. And you know, I mean, the, the thing is, yeah, if you if you put the t- same, t- I mean, this is obviously you know, I'm maybe I'm a bad reviewer, um, but when I see that, it it just doesn't. It looks it looks not it, it looks like rushed or something, you know. Right, and so this is one of those things where you know, if you're a data scientist, being able to count words is like the table stakes for entry. Mm-hmm. So write, write yeah. a word count program and word count. Yeah, I mean the um, I think there, this has a lot in, in common with reviewing resumes for job interviews too. So there's a lot of things that everybody has that their own personal foibles, their own things that, you know, are pet peeves that, you know, maybe they shouldn't have those, but this is, you know, I'm, I, I don't think it's, I think that one is pretty common. And so is the, um, you know, just carpet bombing yep. submission process. That's Here, super annoying to people. Here's my pet peeve about resumes. I hate the objective section. Ah, yeah. So useless. My objective is to obtain a, a top notch data science job at an up and coming data science company. Uh, be it's paid like, oh, more than I'm worth. Uh, like, oh, really? Is that why you sent me this thing? Like, uh, well, I yeah, and I've 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 seen the objective be just overreaching too. Like, uh, you know, I and and I I key off if I'm interviewing somebody, I key off the the objective for okay, so you want to be a machine learning engineer, so let's have a machine learning engineer interview, and you know, if it turns out that they're they're not they're not strong in that in that area but this was an aspiration then you know it's just it's it's hard to fix that mismatch even mid mid interview on my um, own resume i've uh, actually replaced that section with a summary section which i think works out really nice that's um, nicer yeah it's a few, uh, I, I say it works out nice but then i don't get most of the jobs i apply for so <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe i should replace it with an objective section you should yeah. put an objective function in there yeah something like that yeah so the, uh, um so when you when you attended Wrangell, you didn't you have a you did one of your contrarian talks on ethics or was that the FizzBiz? Fizz no, no, that was a when I attended Wrangell last year. I did it was supposed to be a lightning talk on the FizzBuzz and TensorFlow blog post, but then it turns out that they didn't arrange any other lightning talks, so that was the only lightning talk. So it <laughs> ended up being more like a regular talk that just had less time. That's funny, uh, but yeah, it was. They actually when I was there last year, they had a data ethics panel. Yeah. Um, and my sort of summary of it was, uh, people would say, you know, you know, what about this? And I would say, that's bad. The next person would say, that's bad. The next person would say, that's bad. Like, okay, yeah. we all agree that's bad. And then they go on to the next one. And, and so it was a little bit too one note for my taste. And you know me, I like being contrarian about most things. But, well, but you know, even, even on a non-controversial panel, like the, the one we did today, this is my, uh, on Thursday, I, I'd never organized a panel before, but you know, beforehand, we we jokingly were talking about how are we going to disagree on stage. And I actually couldn't moderate because I had a coworker on the panel, but I was still involved in the conversation. And so there was just, you know, we had a consensus actually going in that this is not going to be controversial in the slightest. Um, we're all going to be polite and generally agree on stuff because we all have to work together. So, and it turned out it was it was completely uncontroversial. It was just you know five five reasonable people saying reasonable things that you know you would expect them to say. If I if I ever make a conference and maybe someday I'll make a conference, I'm going to set up my panels um, not to be impolite. I think people should still be like polite to each other sure. um, and, and charitable. But I'm going to set them up so that there are like legitimate differences of opinion because I think that's much more interesting to watch. I would much rather watch a panel of people who you know disagree with each other. Yeah. You know, that, that's why uh, McLaughlin group was so... Right. I don't know if it was popular. I liked it. <laughs> I think back in the day yeah. when it was when it was on TV. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. And I think, I mean, the problem is, you know, the, the topic in, in in our case, the topic was building data products for data scientists. And, you know, the, we had people who, you know, have enough experience with doing that, that, you know, there there are common patterns and anti-patterns that everybody's run into if you've done it, you know, for more than more than two or three years. And so, you know, the only controversial opinions that would be possible would be something like, um, you know, listen to the whims of every user that you ever experience and try to try to execute on that. Something like that, you know. Yeah, the, uh, I, I mean, I guess what I would say is that if that's the case, that um, the wisdom being espoused is like so conventional that you can't disagree with it, mm-hmm. then why have the panel? Like, you I know, know what I mean? Yep. In retrospect, I think uh, we might have done something different. So uh, conferences. Do you like conferences? You know, I've enjoyed some conferences. I um, I think my favorite conferences are math conferences. They tend to be, uh, they tend to be. I mean, obviously, 
I, I mean, maybe not, obviously, but I, I, they, they tend to not have many vendors. They don't have booths. They don't have, uh, you know, the talks aren't um, about products. Um, so they're, they're much more about the topics. So if I think if, you know, if a conference is more about topics uh, and not about sales pitches, then, then I like them. I actually have a tough time with traveling to someplace like New York from Seattle just for, you know, a couple of days of, um, of conference. So I, I have shied away from attending a lot of conferences lately. I mean, the, in the past three or four years, I've given my tickets away, um, to colleagues cause I just couldn't find the budget or energy to, to fly somewhere for, for a conference. But I enjoy, um, I mean, I, I enjoy being on the program committee for conferences where the, where proposals are coming in. Cause I like to, I like to see what people are interested in talking about. That was one reason why I volunteered for Strata was so that I could sort of get an early glimpse on, you know, where trends were heading, but then, you know, in reality, in practice, in practical, practical application, I, I tend to just pop into talks and listen for five minutes and pop back out and just talk, chat with people in the hallway. Yeah. So I, I, I think I think I'm mostly with you. I, I have very mixed feelings about conferences, and that's that. On one hand, I love giving talks at conferences. Right, right. I enjoy it a lot. Um, <laughs> there's some alternative universe in which instead of going into data and machine learning and computer science or whatever, uh, I went into stand-up comedy. Uh-huh. Um, I still think about that. What if you know I graduated high school and just moved to New York and got into stand-up comedy? That could have been like a different path. It would have been a different path, obviously. Um, right. And so. Talks at conferences are kind of the closest I get to that in in my current life. Uh, it's a chance to be on stage in front of people and uh, you know make jokes, but also teach something and use my jokes to make serious points. So I I really like that aspect of it. Um, like you, I hate traveling to conferences. I hate it a lot. I mean, you you have a traveling job, so I can't even imagine that. But uh, yeah, this, I mean. The, the basically conferences and business travel are a subsidy on the airline industry, the petroleum industry, the uh, car industry, the hotel and restaurant industry, in my view. But the, this year, I've gone to two conferences so far. One was, uh, it was called the Southern Data Science Conference. It was in Atlanta. And I went because it was organized by this guy I knew who works at Career Builder, uh, which is in Atlanta. And a couple of years before that, they invited me out to give a talk at their uh, company-wide data science uh, I forget they call it symposium or whatever they have every year. Uh, this was right after my book came out. Um, and, and so I had a relationship with this guy and he started this conference. And, and so I went and it was, it was a really nicely done conference. I enjoyed it, but Atlanta's far and mm-hmm. flying out there just to, you know, show up for a day, give a talk and then turn around and fly back home. Uh, one, it's exhausting. Um, and two, you know, I have a six year old uh, and a family and it's tough Weekends are when I get to spend time with them. And so if I go for the weekend, uh, you know, that's a weekend I don't get to spend with my family, oh, which, yeah. which is that's, difficult. That's a tough one when they, when, when conferences are scheduled on a Saturday. Um, well, this one was on a Friday actually, but still. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Still uh, with the travel. Um, and then I also went to, uh, open data science conference in Boston, uh, which was in Boston, which again is a really long flight from Seattle. Yeah. And again, that one, that was a cool conference. I, I gave a talk there. I liked it. But just that travel, and I had a really bad Airbnb experience on that trip too, which was a bit of a pain in the ass. What was that? Oh, I showed up at my Airbnb, and it was one of these places that used to be like a flop house, and they turned it into like a, an Airbnb <laughs> hotel. Yeah. I, I actually, I actually stayed at one of these in San Francisco uh, last year. When oh, I was you mean the whole conference. building was turned into room uh, after room? Um. So it's not clear. It's possible that some of the floors are like Airbnb room after room and some of the floors are still like, you know, single room occupancy hotels for like vagrants or whatever. Um, But anyway, I got there and the the room I had and it's always these like super tiny rooms with like Ikea furniture in them and maybe a kitchenette and and it hadn't been cleaned. So it was really late and I was tired and there's like Chinese food on the floor and and all this shit. Wow. yeah, the I I didn't the I think the the only bad Airbnb experience we had was in London where and I learned I learned to to really inspect the photographs in the the listing after this because from the photographs it it didn't look fancy it it looked fine right it looked reasonable 
the price was reasonable for what it looked like, you know, it's about half price of what some of the hotels were going at. And we got there and the place smelled like mildew, first of all. And it was just a dump. And like the next day I was like, we got to find something else. This, I mean, cause we got in like 10 o'clock at night. So there's no, not really an option to yep. shift with a baby, right? Uh, not a baby, but you know, three year old. Uh, but the next day I was like, let's just get a hotel. And I, I called up Airbnb and at first I was, you know, I, I was ready to fight because I, I, I was, I was already canceling like a day, you know, a day that I hadn't, you know, that I was required to pay for. And then I wanted to cancel the next day, but we booked a hotel and I started talking with Airbnb and they, you know, they took care of us in the end, but it, at first they were like, well, can you take pictures of the problems? And I'm like, I can't take pictures of the mildew. So I was, you know, primed to be mad, but they, they totally took care of the day that I just skated on. And then the one afterward. Actually, uh, last year when I was going down for, uh, ODSC West, which was in Santa Clara, I waited until way too late to like make travel arrangements. Um, and so I found this Airbnb that had like no reviews, but it was like the only thing available. And so yeah. I was like, but it was very close to the conference. I was like, shit, I'll, I'll book it. Okay. So I booked it. And then like three days before the conference, I get an email from the host canceling my booking. Oof. And she's like, she's like, you know, uh, based on initial feedback, uh, I'm going to stop hosting and reevaluate. And I looked and someone had written a review basically saying that it was the worst place they had ever Oof. stayed. Okay. And there's like roaches and stuff. So, Oof. Like, all right, I'll just go pay too much for a hotel. Then. So well, my dad has done that when he visits here, like a couple of times, uh, you know, he'll book something that's, that's, you know, very affordable to be charitable. And, uh, and you know, each time like, he's like, oh, I just can't believe how bad this place is. And I'm like, well, how much did you pay? And it's in the, you know, a couple of times it's in the double digits. And then, you know, I'm like, well, you know, that's what you get, you know, but he once wrote a review that was so long that it exceeded their, their field that they had uh, room to store the, the review text in. So it got cut off on the website. Yeah, I've, uh, <laughs> it's sad, actually, I've, I've gotten very skeptical of Airbnb, and, I, and I've started to develop a strong bias against uh, using them. I like that I get a lot of space that way, usually, sometimes, yeah. but just the consistency from a hotel, I've, I've learned to really appreciate Mm -hmm. Actually, it turns out they have a new product called uh, Airbnb Lux, I think, which is, uh, I believe they purchased the, the product called Lux so that you can, you can make sure that you're getting something luxurious when you sign up. I don't, so yeah, I don't even need luxurious. I want I like either. clean yeah. and functional. Yeah. Just reliable and consistent. Yeah. But so the travel, that's the travel. what I say. So, right. So that's, the travel. Yeah. That's the, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, uh, you know, uh, it's nice to it's nice to get together and see everybody. It's and that's that's part of the part of the hard part in any field where you know you are communicating with people online and through publications and things like that. It really is a joy to see some people that you work with, you know, once a year or once every other year. But having to fly and do the hotel and and cab thing is is just it's it's really draining i mean and if you have it on the weekend and people's family lives are messed up if you have it during the week the family life's a little messed up and also nobody gets any work done uh or if they do they're not seeing the conference so there's a lot of trade-offs there the the other thing um and this is uh maybe more idiosyncratic to me is that i hate listening to talks uh -huh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care how dynamic the speaker is. I don't care how good the slides are. I don't care how good the topic is. I yeah. just, my brain cannot cope with it. You and get it's, bored or do you just shut down or? I get bored. It's, it's some like, I don't want to diagnose myself with, with ADHD or anything, sure. but it, but it's something like that where if I sit there and have to pay attention to a lecture for more than like five minutes, I just get fidgety and antsy. And, and now that I have a phone or a laptop, I just zone out. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, when I was in school, it, it's sort of, it's somewhat amazing that I did as well in school as I did given that this has been like a lifelong thing. I just would yeah. doodle. I don't doodle anymore. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but, but I feel like lectures in school are different than, uh, than, than conference talks. Cause conference talks have, you know, a very small self-contained topic that, you know, somebody's going to prattle on for 20, 25 minutes about, or 40 minutes about. Whereas in school, there's a, there's a longer arc, right? And so you can, you can zone out for 20, 10 minutes in a class and not miss the whole semester. 
I guess if you're zoning out the entire time, then the same difference. But right, For, pretty much. Yeah. Um, so most of my computer science education was done on Coursera, and Coursera they um, give you these like video lectures, right, to watch, and I they're in, I find them intolerable. But usually, almost every class they'll also give you the lecture slides, so I would just read the lecture slides, and ignore the lectures. Yep. Um, when I was in actually when I was in college, I, w- I was studying French. I wasn't studying, but I was taking like French one one. Yeah. And this is going to date me. But uh, as part of taking French 101, you had to go to this room that's called the Language Lab. Yeah. And the Language Lab, they would, you would check out a cassette tape and put it in, and you would listen to it for, like, 45 minutes a week, and it would, like, have listen to a paragraph, answer these questions about it, listen to it. And, and for, just, for some of our listeners, a cassette tape is an old form of MP3 media, and uh, it was uh, on reels, and it was in a little plastic case. Actually, they're making a comeback. Right. Think, think of it as kind of like, uh, you know, the kind of SD card that you put in your phone or your camera, except that instead of being solid state, it was, yeah, a reel of magnetic tape that would actually physically move over a head and convey information that way. It so you like, had to be in the lab for 45 minutes a week? Um, I didn't even have to. Something I had to be in the lab is that I had to spend 45 minutes a week, like, really intensely focusing on this French audio cassette. And I just found that intolerable, and I ended up like abandoning the Learn French project, yeah. because, mainly because I, I couldn't deal with having to spend forty five minutes a week like focused, mm-hmm. um, which is, in some sense, if I think about it, it's sort of amazing. But well, I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways to take in information. There's one thing I hear I see people talk about um, when they are learning from Coursera or something like that. Uh, you know, when it's a video uh, that they listen at, at two times or four times the normal speed. Yep. I can't, I've tried that. I can't, uh, like that turns me off even worse. Like I, for, so I, I really don't like learning, learning from videos. If there's a, if you like, there's a beautiful post on Twitter about, you know, preferred ways of learning how to use your tool or figure out your documentation. And, you know, it goes from written instructions down to, uh, being the instructions being spray painted on the side of a cow. And then, then video is after the, the cow. And I'm, I'm in that camp. I, I have a tough time sitting and watching somebody go through the instructions, even a screencast. Sometimes those are okay, but it better be short. You know, it better be, it better be 15 seconds of typing stuff into bash or, you know, going through history and, and hitting return. Yeah. You uh, know, after, uh, after my book came out, in fact, ever since my book came out, O'Reilly will intermittently bug me if I want to like make a yeah. video lesson out of portions of it. And I always say no. Um, yep. They've asked me for that too, because, um, so you, lieu, you have a book in lieu of a book. Let's okay. just say <laughs> that there's a topic that I think they've realized that, you know, if they want any kind of information or instruction out of me that they want to, they should try another tack. But uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm in the, I'm similar, like as, as a consumer of video, I, I think it'd be maybe it, maybe it's not hypocritical to, to make a video. Even if you hate watching videos, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not, well, so I have two things. I'm not worried about being hypocritical. I'm hypocritical right. all the time. Um, the thing is, is that my book has an arc, right? Every right. chapter builds on the previous chapter. And so conceptually, it's very hard for me to rip out a single part of that and make it work yeah. standalone. The second, I don't know, I, the idea of like making a video, it's not that it's hypocritical. It's that I can't imagine anyone wanting to learn from a video of me. So it's hard for me to imagine watching but, it. But I think that's what we're realizing is that, you know, there are plenty of people who like going to conferences, even if we don't. And yep. there are people who like watching videos, even if we don't. So, and there are plenty of people who like reading books, even if we don't like writing them. So. Yeah, you're right. I thought maybe the, the other, the other thing is this sort of nagging suspicion that I would go to all the trouble and then they would decide, uh, <laughs> yeah, we can't publish this. Too many, too many swear words. Too many off-color jokes. Too many. Didn't uh, bother shaving. Uh, well, that was like, yeah, that was your joke when I I did that uh, talk at ML Constant. I I did just like a trim on the old whiskers, and you're like, oh yeah, I ran out of razors. I've been there. You gotta you gotta look good look good on video. That's the other problem. Yeah, you know? I know. Because that's the, I mean, that's part of the problem with, uh, with today's kids is that, you know, everything has to look good and kids these days, I don't know, but, um, that this, this is totally irrelevant, but it's a kids these days story. Mm-hmm. Um, yesterday we went to target, we're going to a birthday party later today and we had to buy, um, 
GIFs for the kid. Sure. Say, you mean party GIFs? Six, right? I think it's pronounced GIFs. GIFs. We had to buy GIFs for the kid. And so we got uh, a little My Little Pony thing, because that's what the kids are into. Sure. Um, and then I also thought, you know what? The kids love fidget spinners, right? And they have a huge fidget spinners display at Target. I was like, okay, okay. let's get our fidget spinner too. So I'm looking at the various kinds of fidget spinner, and these kids are walking by, and they come up to me, and they're like, they point at one, they're like, get that one, that's the best. Okay. So apparently there's differences in fidget spinners, and the kids like, are hip to them. That's wild. I, I think it's very interesting. Uh, and it's, I mean, that thing came on and I, I feel like I have my pulse on, you know, the, the under 10 crowd. Cause I chat with parents after school, preschool, but that happened. It seemed like in two weeks that it yeah. became a huge thing. So again, I, I mean, I understand, I like ball bearings. I think they're, they're cool. I like gyroscopes, uh, Maybe that's the appeal, right? The uh, sort of the, the gyroscopic effect, effect. Well, the thing is, is they were selling it next to the, the fidget cube. And I've actually seen those before, right? You know, the yeah. fidget cube. Yeah, we had a guest who got and, that as swag at uh, PyCon and left it at our cottage. Yeah. Do you find it satisfying to play with? Not really. Oh. I mean, it's it's like uh, I, I, I tried it. I could see the appeal, uh, but I, I, I haven't touched it more than once, I think. One of my coworkers has a couple of fidget spinners on his desk, and, I, and I've tried playing with them, and they, I mean, they didn't take. Right. That's the right way to say it. It's like, yeah, okay, I, I spun. <laughs> I fidgeted. I, I mean, I'm, I'm fidgeting all day long anyway, but I don't know that I need a spinner for that. I prefer fidgeting by complaining in private on online. Yeah, and I, I prefer fidgeting by subtweeting people. So, Well, you know, I think, um, actually, you know, if if anybody is interested in how to submit a talk proposal, I, I am open to that. I'll let, let everybody know. If you want to get in touch with me on Twitter, you can send me a direct message. They're open. Oh, yeah. Uh, Are you offering to mentor people? I am offering to mentor people as much as I'm bashing that uh, new thing. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's not fair for that to not be something that everybody has access to. So, Will you, will you mentor me for my next uh, talk proposal? Sure. Happy to. Just need a, just need a talk proposal. I'm not going to mentor you for, you know, data science career or computer science or what editor to use or anything else. Just, just talks. I don't think I need advice on, no. um, actually, no, I, I probably could use some data science career advice. Maybe. Um, well, I, the DMs uh, are open. I'm not a good person for career advice because I've had kind of a random career and I've just kind of, let's just say my career moves have not really been deliberate. They've been more random. Yeah, I have, this, I have the same experience, and and I've had people ask me for help, and you know, most of the time, my advice is, um, you know, learn this or that language and try these problems, and just keep your keep your ears open because it's like there's no magic solution. And I think, I guess, yeah, the reason I've been bashing the mentoring thing lately is uh, it just seems like there's a proliferation of. Um, you know, people who are in the business of giving advice. And I guess that ties into the, the conference world too, you know, so there's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. That's, you know, there's a lot of, it's hard to separate self-promotion and, and your company's promotion out from actually imparting knowledge. So um, hopefully we can do that without being too self-minded. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter. If you look at how did I get my first uh, like official data science job where I had data science in the title, right? What happened was my wife was in a book club. Um, and she went to the book club and she was chatting with this other woman at the book club. And she asked the other woman, what does your husband do? And the woman says, oh, he's he's starting a data company. Yeah. And and mother says, oh, you know, Joel does data. We should introduce them. So they introduced us and we had coffee and we chatted like a couple times. And then he offered me a job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, the, yeah, it's like, the, you know, when we were, Sarah and I were on that partially D or yeah, the partially D thing about how did you become a data scientist? It's like the the end the end recommendation i have based on my experience since it's worked out so well is to first off drop out of college and then spend a long time not getting your bachelor's degree and then finally get it again so the basics are, are where it's at but yeah the the other funny thing about that job well there are a lot of funny things about that job <laughs> one is that after i'd been there about a year uh we kind of sat down and figured out that i was the rate limiting step in most of the things the company was doing so like if oh. there were two of me the company could have moved for much lay faster. For, for lay people is that the bottleneck I was the, um, I don't want to say I was the bottleneck, but it was more, if there were two of me, the company could have done yeah. almost twice as much stuff. 
let's say. Yeah. No, yeah. maybe not, but could have done a lot more stuff. And so I got um, approval to basically hire ent- a couple of entry-level data science people. Yeah. So like no real qualifications required other than kind of like math aptitude, a little bit of coding skills, and like interest in data science. Um, and my sense Sounds is right. that today, if I posted a job like that, I would be inundated in applicants, right? Yes. This was 2012. I had the hardest time finding people who were interested in that. That's awesome. Yeah. I know. Well, it's, yeah, it's, there's, I think, I mean, I, I am not a big fan of the, uh, the, you know, the expensive boot camp thing. And I think that that's doing a disservice to a lot of people. I think a lot of people are getting sold on the concept that they can spend $16,000 just to name a number, uh, for what a 10 week course and then come out at, uh, you know, $120,000 salary, just like that. And I think that, uh, I mean, having interviewed a lot of graduates of those boot camps, I think, um, I think they're being sold a bill of goods. If we keep trashing like boot camps and conferences and everything, we're never going to get anyone to sponsor this podcast. I know. But here's the thing. We're just starting a conversation. We're starting the dialogue. That's right. If there's any boot camps who are like the good guys, then uh, feel free to sponsor us. And we'll- there are, they are out there. I know they are. You know, I have a weird perspective because I'm kind of self-taught mostly, Um, but I'm also sort of crazy in that I'm willing and excited to spend a big chunk of my free time learning that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I do. We had this discussion at work the other day about a couple of us are saying, I think the context was, should applicants be expected to have like GitHub's full of interesting projects? Um, Oh, I have an opinion on that. and, And some people at the table were saying, you know what? I come to work and I code and I go home. I don't want to think about code. Mm-hmm. And so that's some people. And then there's like me, which is that, you know, if I did not have family obligations, I would probably never stop thinking about code. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so those are kind of two ends of, of a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, well, I think that that, that sort of rubric gets, gets misapplied when, you know, people get thought literally talking about, that you shouldn't even have to interview, that your resume and your GitHub and your slide share should speak for themselves. And, you know, the fact is for some people use Bitbucket and so whatever, that's, that's just a, just a fine point. But, um, a lot of people do work on stuff. They just can't show the world. Right. So that like the, the first person you mentioned, they come to work, they do, they do a lot of really good stuff. Everybody would recommend them to another team, but you know most of their work is locked away somewhere that they can't show. Well, no. so so there's definitely that aspect. There's there's another aspect which is I have a lot of stuff on my GitHub, like public stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a lot to see there, and yet it doesn't give you a very complete picture of who I am as a person, as a data scientist, as a developer. Mm-hmm. It's you know a combination of either open source things I've contributed to, or like stupid toy problems I've put up or yeah. my book, but it's still like, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you everything I've done in my career. Right. It doesn't give you right. a more rounded picture of me as a person. So well, it doesn't give you, it doesn't give a good picture of how you operate on a team either. Right. It doesn't have any sort of artifacts of, you know, the, the fact that you're a Maven whiz. And when there's a problem with Maven, everybody says, Joel's the Maven guy. He'll fix it. God, no, don't talk, don't talk to me. About I'm, I'm saying it's a hypothetical that, that, you know, but yeah, that, you know, that, that type of thing where it's like, oh no, Joel's the guy for that. You know, that's not on your GitHub. Yeah. And then there's also, you know, some people have these stack overflow profiles where, yeah, sure. I think all the Stack Overflow points I have are because I asked a question once. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you could be on Stack Overflow or Quora or Medium, and you know that all that stuff is is uh, it. It may have a flavor of how you would communicate on a team, but it, it really doesn't capture how you are in, on the job. Actually, my Quora, I used to make like bad jokes, so it, it does pretty well capture how I'd be on the job. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's the that's the intended uh, so that's not the intended like, purpose of Quora. But that's how I, I felt. Like, yeah, I felt like Quora Quora's intended purpose was to be a very serious answering service, right? Yeah, well, I'm not capable of being that serious. Oh. So. And then my LinkedIn my LinkedIn has some weird stuff on it as well. Um, uh-huh. like, the the top of it is all matter of fact, but I put in some really stupid skills like uh, paranormal romance. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, and I, I didn't like that was already on their list of possible skills. I didn't add it. So other yeah, people I mean, must've put it first. Um, and then also there's some other things 
in like the descriptions of jobs that are kind of like inside jokes for people who work at those jobs that don't make That's sense awesome. to else. I actually got once a recruiter who asked me about all the inside jokes. He's like, these all sound fascinating. I want to know about them. And also, would you like to interview with this crappy company? It's like, yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, the um, I I can't take LinkedIn seriously. Obviously, I have the ice cream picture. That's my personal brand. I actually, uh, they started this thing with like LinkedIn influencers, right? So you can blog on LinkedIn as well. Oh God. Yeah. So I wrote a couple blog posts there, and they were totally not serious. Okay. They were serious titles, (laughs) but then not serious articles. So one of them was. an open letter to Satya Nadella because this is a time when people, are, I think he had just taken over. Yeah. Uh, and so people were writing all these open letter to Satya. And well, was, saw, was that before or after he stuck his foot in his mouth about women just need to step up and ask for the raise? I think it was probably before that. Okay. But anyway, uh, so, so you see the time like, Oh, an open letter to Satya Nadella. I bet this guy has some like great, uh, you know, perspectives on Microsoft or whatever. Yeah. And then the open letter was asking him if he'd seen the picture of The Rock wearing a fanny pack with like a 90s haircut. <laughs> I was like, that was pretty good, right? Yeah, that's good. Um, that's like the guy who's answering Trump, Trump tweets as though they're text messages. Have you yeah, seen I that? saw that one. That's pretty good, too. And then the other one is like, uh, five signs you're a bad manager. Oh, God. Yeah, because people write LinkedIn posts like that, right? Of course, yes. Yeah. But how to, mine are like, how to like, recognize a bad manager. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, but mine are like... Uh, you know, number five, people always say to you, hey, you're a bad manager. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got to look you up on LinkedIn then, I guess. That, that was a pretty good top 10 list. I think my wife uh, really discouraged me from uh, posting it. She, oh. thought be, she thought it would not be good for my brand. But career limiting? Yeah, something I like actually that. heard somebody said that my ice cream photo was career limiting. And uh, yeah, that's... that he would never give me a promotion unless I changed that picture. Number three, whenever you see a LinkedIn article with a title like Five Signs That You Might Be a Bad Manager, you click on it. Because <laughs> it's in the back of your mind. Right. That's great. Number four, you're a senior finance director in the Worldwide Planning and Logistics Organization, and your name is Gus, and you always wear stupid polo shirts all the time, <laughs> and everyone makes fun of you behind your back, but you have no idea. And the reason we filled your office floor to ceiling with balloons when you went on vacation was not as a good-spirited lark, but because we all hate working for you. Oh, God. What's number one and two? Um, so so uh, one is long and not worth reading out. And then the last one is uh, you get way more gifts than anyone else on Bad Manager's Day. Oh, <laughs> should be a sign. You should have made, you should have put two and two together, Gus. I know. So I, I should, uh, I should go back to blogging on LinkedIn. It's just, you know, between LinkedIn and Medium and my own blog oh. and Twitter. Have you published anything on Medium yet? No, I have a bunch of drafts. Uh, yeah. Actually, I published something on the AI2 blog. Does that count? Yes. Okay. Then yes, I have. Um, yeah. But I, I have several drafts in my own personal medium, and I've never posted any of them, and possibly yeah. I never will. That's they, fine. They are career limiting. Yeah, it's fine. It could just be something that you you, you throw away. It's like it's like writing with that, that advice that if you're mad at somebody, write a letter and then throw it away. No, that, that is good advice. It's great advice. You get to write it out. You get to like erase your mistakes. You get to make it even meaner and then throw it out. Yeah. Throwing it out probably would have been a good idea. Yeah. What, uh, what else about conferences? So one thing that I struggle with at conferences being like, a, 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 what's, the, what's the right word to say? Um, being kind of a antisocial weirdo is how to talk to people. Yep. So, you know, I have a slight in. And that people will sometimes come up to me and say, hey, I really like your book. Or if you give a talk, people say, hey, uh, I really like your talk. Um, mm-hmm. And so those are those are nice icebreakers, except that like then a big chunk of the time they're like, here's my business card. I sell like some terrible consulting services. Please yep, buy them sure. for me. Oh, and that's me. That. That's what I do. Yeah. Right. So I have this problem at not conferences too. But at not conferences, my usual, my preferred solution is I, I bring my six-year-old with me. Yeah. And she's like a great icebreaker. Because yep. people always come and like talk to her like, hi, what's your name? How old are you? And then like once they do that, then they're like sucked in and then they talk to me. Off and running. Yeah, sure. Um, so maybe I should bring her to conference. Bring your, yeah, bring your kid. That, uh, actually, yeah, we did that at Apache Con a couple of years ago. We brought both kids and uh, we were the center of attention with Margaret screaming the whole time. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, like for me, uh, I guess at, at Wrangle this Thursday, I'll just read back. I, I had a bunch of small talk where... There, I 
it's hard if you just have never met somebody, but you know, you pass them three times and you, you have to stop and say, hi, you can't, you can't just keep walking past people and making eye contact. It's uncomfortable. Uh, I guess you can, but it, it's you know, just felt, you know, you, you have to stop and shake hands and say, Hey, and I, my go-to for conferences is, are you enjoying the show? No. Cause that, that puts, that, that starts the conversation and it lets them tell you, but you know, it, it, it tends to peter out. Tends to be like, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, you. Have to... There's a lot of what do you do? Right. Yeah. I work at you know Name Universe. Oh well, yep. what do you guys do? Oh well, we do a lot of uh, neural networks for deep funnel optimization and you know marketing attribution using convolutional techniques and. Oh. oh. <laughs> That's great. Our run rate is you know, hundred thousand a month and. Right now, we're looking towards raising a Series B with that. We're going to pivot. Yeah, I mean, small talk about the conference it tends to work pretty well. Um, you know, are you enjoying the show? Which was your favorite talk? It's kind of like you know how you talk to a kid about like your trip to the to Yosemite or something. So, RangelConf has like a cowboy theme. Yes, it does. So, I I actually think we should start a conference called MangleConf. Mangle with like a like a horror movie theme or sure or just because it's about how to mangle data and get get results. So yeah, it's it's like there's a big foam uh, cowboy hat and um, the organizers tend to wear plaid and you know boots and jeans and um, they set up pallets to make it look like a ranch. Is that a good icebreaker? Hey, how about them? It's funny. It's funny. I mean, Should, should more conferences have funny themes? I don't see why not. I mean, the big red foam hat is is just it. It made me laugh every time I saw somebody walk around with it. It's it's just you know it's 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 better than you know it's better than taking it seriously. I mean, part of part of the part of the problem with with conferences is that you know people are there to at least present that they they think that this is serious stuff, and you know a lot of it is not. So I think part of what is fun about that conference is that there is some irreverence. There's, you know, people who are willing to get on stage and talk about how lots of the tools are broken and, you know, most time is spent uh, searching Jira tickets and patching Hadoop ecosystem projects or or what have you, Um, which I think that's missing in a lot of conferences where, you know, the polished, you know, the, the people try to present a polished view of this stuff so that it isn't scary to the enterprise, say. So it's more, you know, it's it's more aimed at practitioners, which is is refreshing. Should there be a conference that is fundamentally about being not serious about serious things? In in a vacuum, like just about, or is it about any any serious thing or? Something specific. Uh, the, the, the not serious data science conference. I think so. Yeah, I think Wrangle could be that. I think it's it's well on its way there. You think so? Like oh. when, when I look at the talks, they're mostly serious topics, right? That's true. I mean, uh, I'm open I, to. I, I'm open to that. I mean, a conference where you know the talks are not serious, or or like here's something really stupid I did. Yeah. But like stupid but interesting, right? Stupid but fun and interesting. Sure. You know, I actually this yeah, in TensorFlow or yeah or, or whatever. Yep. I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, I think there's room for a conference like that, especially if it doesn't involve travel. Oh, like a, a virtual conference. Yeah. Google Hangouts. I'm doing a, I'm doing a virtual conference in, uh, September, I think. And they're already, oh. bom- they're already bombarding me with, you know, here's some things you could tweet about it. Like, awesome. Okay. So what is it? Just Google Hangouts and it's organized or what? I don't think it's Google Hangouts. Um, I think it's more structured than that. Like you go to a website and stream it, but mm-hmm. Uh, I usually don't know the technical details. I just know that I had to submit them uh, an abstract, even though I don't know what I'm going to be talking about, and a biography. You don't? No. September? Oh. God. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm going to be talking about in September. Yeah. I don't know what I'll be talking about in August. Right. What, what date in September? Uh, you know what's what? The, I'll, what's I'll, the name I'll, of it? It is organized by Metis, which is uh, okay. one, of the, one of these boot camps uh, that we were just disparaging. Oh, uh, we were disparaging them by name. Let's no, be fair. Sure. Um, and they they opened the Seattle office, and I gave uh, a lightning talk there, and it was well received. So now they've invited me and a bunch of other people to give virtual talks at their virtual demystifying data science conference. Oh, cool, that sounds good. Um, so I'll have to figure out what I want to say about demystifying data science. Maybe I'll just uh, recycle the lightning talk I gave in Seattle, since most people haven't seen it. Sure. Yep. 
Um, or maybe I'll come up with something new. Maybe I'll talk about something that's not data science at all. Um, I'll be running an all-day uh, machine learning training down at Revolution, uh, which is sponsored by my employer in Las Vegas in September. Well, what is Revolution? Is that, that's a conference? It's, yeah, it's the LucidWorks conference. So it's about solar and leucine, basically. But there's also Revolution is like the R company that Microsoft bought, right? Correct, yeah. It's an overloaded term. Little, con- Yeah, it's a little confusing. Which is more revolutionary? That's a great question, Joel. Um, I mean, I you know, I think uh, I think you know, you you can you can look at it both ways. I think uh, parallelizing a handful of algorithms in R is pretty revolutionary, really. Yeah. Well, what is uh, what is your conference revolting against? <laughs> or, or or is it revolution in the sense of like a carousel? It's just maybe something that comes around every year. I don't know. Oh, I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's revolting against um, the tyranny of HDFS, I guess. And uh... I we've we've <laughs> suffered under the the gash boot of HDFS for too long. If you want to imagine the future, yeah. All right. Uh, I think we've, we've disparaged HDFS enough for for one episode. You know, it was good for what it was for. <laughs> long live hdfs long live the distributed file system well cool this was uh this was nice to catch up thanks for uh taking the time on a sunday yeah we should uh we should do this more often i know we should i wish get some sponsors yeah metis right uh, yeah you're listening I, yeah ignore the part where we said not nice things about boot camps and and focus on the part where i talked about your unconference that i'm or your virtual conference that i'm participating in yeah totally Cool. Well, thanks to everybody for listening. Nice to uh, know you're out there. We see the stats. At least you you have an automated download because you've hooked it up one time. So that's always, always feels good. Feels like feels like thanks for listening. Uh, just your usual reminders. If you want to follow us, you can check out the podcast at adversariallearning.com. You can follow us on Twitter at adversarial underscore L. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send us an email at adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joel Gruce. You can find Andrew on Twitter at AKM. If you want to sponsor us, uh, write us a check. And if you want to rate us, you can rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or any other podcast rating thing that I don't know what they're called, but I'm sure they're good. And yeah, we'll see you next time. I think we'll probably have a guest next time, and I think it will be awesome. Mm-hmm.